When you make a decision in your life, especially a big one, do you really consider the effect that it's going to have on your future life, on the people in your life? You would probably say, yeah, I try to. I try to weigh the pros and the cons, and here's what I've come to learn. Sometimes in life, if we could go back to some of the big decisions we made, and if we could have those consequences laid out for us, it might really affect the decision that we're making. Do you think the adulterous spouse considers the effect it's going to have on the spouse, on the children, on the family, on their future life? No, probably not. What do you think they consider? Themselves. They become very focused on yourself. As we've been studying through 2 Samuel and looking at David's life, I want to point out three bad decisions in his life that are all linked together that are having drastic consequences in our Bible study and in his life. Number one, contrary to David's law, David chose to have more than one wife. He decided for whatever reason that it would be good and fun and effective to have multiple wives, and I think the Bible lists about eight of them. As a result of that, David had many children from many different wives, and we have read in this last couple of weeks some major problems, major catastrophes. With all the children from different mothers, let's just say they were not one big happy family, were they? We saw David's son, Amnon, rape David's sister, Tamar. As a result of that, we saw David's son, Absalom, kill his brother, Amnon. So we've seen the, the issue of family problems. So the first major decision that I, that in our study tonight that we're going to identify is David chose to have more than one wife, and that was contrary to God's law. If he'd followed God's law, many of the consequences that we're going to see from his decision would not be taking place. The second thing, the second thing he did is he failed to do anything about it when Tamar was raped by Amnon. The scripture tells us he was angry, but he didn't hold him accountable. He instead, he sort of suspended justice, if you will, and just kind of let things go by the wayside. And, and what happened is Absalom, Tamar's brother, from the Absalom and Tamar were from the same mother, began to be, build anger and got angrier and angrier and angrier. And you can, even, you can understand that, right? If somebody did something like that to your family member, that would build anger in you. After two years, what took place was Absalom killed his brother Amnon and fled to Geshur. The third major decision, you can see the first one was that he had more than one wife. The second one is he didn't hold uh, Amnon accountable. And the third one is he didn't hold Absalom accountable. Again, he lets Absalom kind of just sort of, sort of go off on this self-imposed banishment as he leaves the, the nation of Israel. And after being away for a couple of years, Joab's trusted general... I'm sorry, David's trusted general Joab decides he wants to bring Absalom home, and he brings Absalom home. We studied this last week, and, and you know, David sort of forgave Absalom, but we never saw any true repentance in Absalom's heart. And what we're going to see tonight, what we see unfolding, is going to be the consequences of David not holding Absalom responsible for what he had done in his portion of this. Before we begin all of this, I want you to know, before we begin all of it, it all could have been avoided if he'd have simply followed God's law and not taken multiple wives. That's a lesson for us. The Bible said very clearly in Deuteronomy 17, 17, neither shall he multiply, so this is speaking of kings, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. How much of the difficulty in your life could have been avoided if you had aligned yourself with God's word? How much of the difficulty in your life could have just wouldn't even exist if we had chose to follow God's law instead of making our own decision? How much of it could have been avoided if we'd have really weighed out the consequences 
of what's taking place. Now let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 15 tonight and look at the results of David's decision to bring Absalom back home. Verse 1, after this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and he'd stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that if I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. After being in Israel for two years and not seeing his father, Absalom became bitter and he became angry. Remember, he sent word to Joab. He wanted to hear, he wanted a word with David. And he sends word to Joab. Joab doesn't return his call, so to speak. Now, I know they didn't have phones, but imagine that. You make a phone call to somebody, they don't return it. You make another phone call to somebody, they still don't return it. That's what's taking place between Joab and Absalom. So what what does Absalom do? He goes and he burns Joab's barley field down. Now he's got his attention. Joab does what? Hey, why'd you burn my field down? I wanted to talk to you and you wouldn't return my call. Tells you the kind of man that Absalom was. He was going to get what he wanted. He didn't care what the cost was. Wasn't concerned about anybody but who? But himself. It was, he was all focused on himself. So in this section of scripture, what we see taking place after being in Israel for these two years, he's now setting his sights on taking over the kingdom of Israel. He set his goal. He's going to take over the nation Israel. Now here's the catch. He was probably already next in line to be king. He's, he's probably already there, but it's not happening quick enough for him. Patience is his problem. So he decides he's going to take it over, and I want you to see how he undermines his father's authority, King David's authority, or even more clearly, how he divides the nation, how he divides the kingdom. He does some very, very specific things, and I want you to notice the approach that he uses, because the way that he divided the nation Israel is the same way that people can divide things today. People can divide a church this way. You can divide a business this way. You can divide any group of people this way. And look at what he does. Number one, he promoted himself. He promoted himself. He provided himself with chariots, horses, and 50 men to run before him. Why? Because he wanted people to think he was important. If you want to be a king, you've got to look like a king. If you want to be a king, you've got to dress like a king, act like a king. You've got to carry yourself like a king. So I'm going to build myself what? An entourage. I'm going to have them go out before me. They're going to let everyone know I'm coming. I'm going to, you know, gather the people. In other words, he's, he's, if we would call it today, he's building his brand. He's getting himself known. He's making himself recognized, letting everyone know who he is. Number two, notice that Absalom was a hard worker. It says he got up early. He said he rose early and went to the gate. He rose early in the morning, stood beside the way. He invested the time. He wasn't afraid to put time into this. He wasn't afraid to put effort into this. He was getting up before everybody else to make sure he was in place to accomplish what he had. Number three, Absalom targeted a certain group of people in a specific location. He was going after a certain group. And it says in verse two, now Absalom would rise early, stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit 
came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, where are you from? You see, in that day, the king was the supreme court, if you will. If in your local tribe you didn't like the judgment that you received, you would appeal your case and you would take it to the king. And say, king, this is what's going on in my case. This is what's going on in my life. Would you please decide on this? And the king could choose to hear the case or he could choose not to decide or he could make a decision for you. We've seen that in, in the previous chapters with, uh, with King David. So what he's doing, what Absalom does, he goes down to the gate. He's there early. He's looking for a specific group of people in a specific location. He knows there's going to be people coming, and he knows they're what? They're troubled. They're bothered. They're in a lawsuit. They're, there's a dispute going on. There's maybe a family member has been killed. He's trying to find out what's going on. There's something major going on in their life. They're burdened, and he finds them. And what does he do? He's real nice to them. Hey, what city are you from? Where are you from? Tell me about your case. But he also, he would meet them. He would befriend them. They were appealing to the highest judge in the land. They're coming. They've traveled all the way to Jerusalem to get a ruling in their case. And here he is befriending them. And he would also present a certain personality, number four. He presented himself in a certain, this sounds a lot like our politicians, doesn't it? They meet you in a certain place. They have an agenda. They want to tell you what you need to hear. This is what he's doing. He presents a certain personality. He says, look, your case is good and right. Everybody that came, their case was good and right. He wasn't concerned about justice. What was he concerned about? I just want to be liked. Why? Because I want you to vote for me as king. When I, when I say I'm the king of Israel, I want you to stand up and cheer. That's, I want the people. That's the way that they, they, they approve that way. Uh, he's trying to drag them on his side. Everybody that came before him. And then notice, when anyone came near to, near to bow down to him, he would put out his hand and he'd take him. And he'd kiss him. So in other words, he'd say, no, 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 get up. You don't have to bow down to me. No, no, I'm not king. If I was king, then I would take care of this problem for you. But I'm not. I'm not. You, he's presenting a false humility to them. No, no, I, I've got your best interest in heart. But, but just, you know, you're right. You have a great case here. But, but there's just, no, no, don't, don't bow down to me. He presents himself as being humble, being friendly, being really nice. And now, number five, the thing that he does is, he creates a problem that wasn't really there. Or you could even say that he magnifies a small uh, problem that's not really that important. What's the problem that he's creating? What does he say? He says, then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good. Your case is right. You've got a good case here. But, but there's no deputy to hear you. I'm sorry, you're going to have to go home. There's nobody to hear you. No, but, but I traveled all the way from across the nation of Israel, and I want to, no, I'm sorry, there's nobody to hear you. Was that true? Not at all. David was there. David could have heard them, but what was Absalom doing? He's setting them up. He takes a problem that doesn't exist, and he makes it a problem. He takes a small problem. Maybe David was busy, and there was a small problem there, but he magnifies it, and he makes it something. He blows it out of proportion, and he says, but there's nobody to hear you. And now, how conveniently and crafty he says, now that I've created this problem, and he doesn't tell them that, guess what he says? I'm the solution to your problem. He doesn't say that David's too busy. He doesn't point out David's flaws. He doesn't say anything negative about David. What does he simply say? Well, if I was king, if I was king, I would give you justice. Everyone, moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made the judge in the land and everyone who had any suit or cause would come to me then I, I would take care of this problem. If I was king, I'd handle this for you. But I'm not king. I'm just, I'm just no, no, you don't have to bow to me. Just get up. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a regular guy. Just, just come on. And what do the people say when they hear something like this? Well, why aren't you king? If you would take care of this problem, you, we would make you king. 
How come, how come this is, I didn't even realize this was a problem. How come there's no one here in Jerusalem to hear my case? You see, he's pointing out all this stuff that doesn't really even matter. Now here's the catch. If you're a pastor, if you're an employer, if you oversee people, you need to watch out for people like this. These kind of people, they're called divisive people. And you know what? Divisive people sometimes, actually most of the time, don't even realize they're being divisive. They don't even realize they're dividing something. Their focus is always on themselves, yet they'll present it as a cause for the group. They'll always present like, I'm doing something good for mankind. I'm doing something better for the group. I'm doing, this is, this is good. If I were the pastor, if I were the king, if I was the leader, if I was this, then it, none of this stuff would happen. And they would point to problems that don't, don't even exist. Well, if I was the pastor of that church, I would fix it. I'd take care of the parking problem. I take care of this problem, or I take care of that problem. And they always want to, and they want to draw people to themselves. You ever been part of a church split? Isn't this how it happens? This is exactly what takes place in a, when a church splits. If you've, if you've ever been part of it, how it hurts. There's somebody that rises up against the pastor, and they don't even realize what they're doing. Because if you tell them they're divisive, they're going to say, no, I'm not. But yes, you are, because you're following this exact example. And you begin, well, I'd fix this, and I'd fix that. And the people would go, uh-huh, okay, we're with you. And before you know it, well, we're going out and start our own church. Okay, here we go. And off they go. That's exactly what's taking place. Listen, people who are divisive will promote themselves. They'll work hard at what they're trying to accomplish. They'll target a group of people who are often disgruntled or unhappy. That's who's coming to meet David. They're not happy with something. They're often disgruntled or unhappy. Then they create and magnify a problem which they become the solution to. Do you see how the plan unfolds? You say, Rob, you've just taught us how to be divisive. <laughs> no, no, I taught you how to recognize it. You see, I don't want you to be divisive, but I want you to be able to recognize that. So whether it be in your personal life, whether it be in the church, whether it be somewhere else, when somebody starts to do this, you can say, wait a minute, I remember this happened to King David back in 2 Samuel 15. Now I want you to notice it's somebody close to him. It's his son. Absalom is the son of David. The split, how much more painful is it when he thinks that he can trust his son, but his son, the one that's very close to him, who he brought him back because uh, Joab saw that David was missing him, is the very one who deceives him and splits. One commentator put it this way, divisive people almost never see themselves as divisive. They see themselves as crusaders for God's righteous cause and often believe or hope God's hand is upon them. This is especially a problem when many will only believe a person is divisive if they are to admit they are divisive. You'll never get a divisive person to admit they're divisive. That's not the goal that they sent out. They believe they're really there to solve a problem. They think they can fix the issue, but oftentimes the issue is not really that big of a deal. And they're not the person that God has anointed or put in the position that they're that's supposed to be overseeing. Now, when I say divisive, don't you know what that means? Because they're everywhere. At your work, they pop up in churches, they pop up in organizations and civic groups. There's always that group that pops up. It's important that we understand as Christians how to identify them. Because you'll recognize when they begin to point out the problem that they are a solution to, you need to get that little bell or that light bulb that goes off and goes, huh, why is he solving his own problem? Or why is she saying this when she can solve her own problem? And what should we say? How do you combat something like that? I don't see that as a problem at all. I think the parking problem at church is a good problem to have. Why, do, why is that a big deal? I, I mean, look at, the, look at the positive of that. They don't want to hear stuff like that because you're not being drawn to them. But it's important that we recognize it because if we don't recognize it, 
the damage that it can do can be great. And if you've ever been part of a church split, it hurts. Because when the family splits up, maybe it's been a family split. Maybe it's your very own family that is split because some member has been divisive and now there's two sides that won't talk to each other. It hurts. It's painful. Close to each other. They don't even recognize what's taking place. It's happening in David's life too. But remember, the consequence of this happening is a result of the decisions that he's made up until this point. Had he chose to only have one wife, none of these things would have happened. And it's important that we realize as Christians the decisions we make We need to really weigh the cost and really look and say, what are the ramifications of what I'm about to do or what I'm choosing, especially when it comes to the big decisions? Now, verse 7. Now, it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Now notice it says, now it came to pass after 40 years. Some of your translations may say four years. You say, which is it, Rob? Well, the King James and the New King James say 40, and some of the newer translations say four years. Uh, There's two possibilities here. One, it it could have been mistranslated under 40. Some people believe that the 40 years represents the time from which David became king. It doesn't really matter whether it's four or 40. What we need to understand is that for some period of time, several years, Absalom was doing this very thing we read about in the first six verses. He was going out to the front gate. He was drawing people unto himself. And we even read there in the beginning that he, he, he drew the men's heart to himself. He drew the men's heart to himself. Now, here Absalom comes to David and he says what? Let me go to Hebron, David. I made a vow back when I was in Syria. that if God brought me back to Jerusalem, then I'd go to Hebron. And what does David say to him? I go back and then I'll serve the Lord. And David says, Go. But the plot continues. Verse 10. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently, and they didn't know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, from Gilo while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Absalom's numbers are working. Notice he says spies throughout the land. He says, listen, when you hear, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, you say Absalom reigns in Hebron. He's strategically placing people throughout Israel. So when the trumpet blows, you'll have a whole nation with people in all different places declaring that Absalom is reigning in Hebron. He also takes some people with him that were told 200 men they're not privy to his plan or his conspiracy. They're just going along as they're going along innocently. And notice it says Ahithophel. Ahithophel. He takes Ahithophel, who was David's advisor. But you remember in our previous studies who Ahithophel was? Who was he? Anybody know? He was Bathsheba's grandfather. Remember David and Bathsheba? Remember the adulterous thing? And then remember David killed Uriah, and then David married Bathsheba, and they had a child together. The child died. Remember that all previously? Notice who Absalom goes after, Ahithophel. Why? Because there is no doubt he's still bitter about what David did to his family. There is no doubt that he's bitter that he killed his grandson-in-law, Uriah. There's no doubt. So when somebody wants to create divisiveness, when someone wants to create or draw somebody that's close to you away, they're going to find the one that's bitter. 
They're going to find the one that's holding on. They're going to find the one that won't let go. And there's a lesson for that in us too. Don't hold on to the bitterness. Don't hold on to it. This is who David's bring, or, or uh, this is who Absalom's bringing with him. He was an advi- Ahithophel was an advisor to David, and he probably knew that he was unhappy. Now you can imagine as this is unfolding in the nation of Israel, it's only a matter of time before word gets out and it gets back to David, right? Look at verse thirteen. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. How do you think that made David feel? The kingdom that God has built under you, the kingdom that you united, the kingdom that you fought for, the kingdom that you slayed Goliath for, the kingdom that you have been living for and fighting for and protecting for, they're abandoning you, David. They're leaving you. They're leaving you. They're done. When word comes to David, David's going to make the decision to evacuate the city of Jerusalem. Notice verse 14. So David said all his servants, he said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, where we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The mighty King David is now being forced to leave the city, the capital city of Israel, the city that he designated as the capital, the city that he, is, that he fought to take, the nation that he is leading. How does this happen? How, David, how could this possibly happen? Let me suggest a couple of things to you. Number one, David was getting older. David was getting older, right? People like change. You know, let, let's out with the old, in with the new. What's the, what's the slogan for our, camp, for our political campaigns? What, are the, what is everybody going to bring? Change. We're going to bring change, right? People like change. Perhaps that's going on. Perhaps, perhaps David's sin has diminished his standing before the people. Perhaps his affair with Bathsheba, the killing of Uriah, which may or may not be public. Perhaps his failure to hold his two sons for justice. Perhaps those things, those poor decisions, have diminished his standing among the people. Perhaps in a prophetic realm, just possibly, David had to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings and be rejected like the son of David, meaning Jesus Christ, would be later rejected. Perhaps there's a prophetic realm to this as well. Adam Clark put it this way, he said, Behold, a king, the greatest that ever lived, a profound politician, an able general, a brave soldier, a poet of the most sublime genius and character, a poet of the mo- a, a prophet of the most high God, and the deliverer of his country is driven from his dominion by his own son and abandoned by his fickle people. That's what's happening to David right now. It's a sad time in his life. He's being driven out of leadership. For a number of reasons, possibly, the people are fickle. We're going with Absalom. Why? Because Absalom had created the division. He had solved the problem that they needed, and he had presented himself as the solution. So David is on his way, tells, gives word. Come on, guys. Come on, soldiers, servants, pack up. We're leaving Jerusalem. We're going to leave this place. We're going to leave this city. Look at verse 15. The king's servants said to the king, We're your servants. We're ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And the king went out with his household after him. But the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him. And all the Carathites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Notice the people that are gathering and passing before him that are leaving with him. They're foreigners. They're not Israelites, they're foreigners. 
the Cherethites, the Pelethites. These are the foreigners that are rallying around David when the Israelites are forsaking him. During this difficult time, you can only imagine what David's heart is thinking. What is, it, what is a man who was king of a nation, prophet of the living God, close with God, now being thrown out, being forced to flee the very place that God had put him? Several of the Psalms were written during this time. I want to read to you Psalm chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. It says this, and it was written as David was fleeing from Absalom. It says, David put his trust in God. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice. He heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Psalm 41, Psalm 61, Psalm 62, and Psalm 63, even Psalm 55 were all written during this time of David. You get a clear picture of what David's going through. He's fleeing, but he's still worshiping God. He's still praising God. He's still relying on God. It says David put his trust in the Lord. The number of people that are, com- that are coming against him are increasing. His situation is looking more dim and more bleak. But he says the Lord is a shield for him. Now how does that work in our life? You ever felt like you were on the run? You ever felt like life was falling apart? You ever felt like people are against you and they're numbering? You've ever felt like the, the, the walls of the world are just closing in? Look what David does. He says, Lord, I trust in you. I trust in you. I laid down and slept. He was able to sleep because his faith was in God. He wasn't trying to figure it out. He wasn't plotting and planning. He wasn't trying to figure, how can I get out of this situation? He was just simply running at this point. He was simply moving. The situation, the circumstance that he was in dictated him to move in a direction, and he was just following the direction that he was moving in. And then verse 19, the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. Notice he says with the king. Who's he referring to? He's referring to Absalom there. He's returned with the king. Notice he's not holding on to the kingdom. He's holding on to his relationship with God as he's fleeing. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go to since I go, I know not where, return, take your brethren back, mercy and truth be with you. So he tells this guy, Ittai, he says, listen, go on back, go be with the Absalom, he's going to take the kingdom, you just showed up here yesterday, go on, go, go, go back with him. Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives, as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. I love the loyalty. I love the faithfulness. He says, David, whether you live or die, I'm going to be with you. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It was faithful and loyal. And I love the fact that he's faithful and loyal in a low part of David's life. Oh, it's easy to be faithful and loyal when somebody's on top, isn't it? It's easy to be faithful and loyal with somebody who's having great success. I'm with you right there. I'm with you. We're going to climb the ladder together. Come on, let's go. Oh, oh, that just happened? Oh, oh, you just got fired. Oh, no, no, I'm not with you anymore. Oh, no, no, no. Somebody, I heard something about you. Oh, no. You see how easy we can just 
Our, our loyalty can be pledged when it's beneficial to us. But when here's David on a, on a very low point of his life, and I love that loyalty that says, David, I'm with you. Whether you're high or whether you're low, wherever you're at, I'm walking with you. I'm with you. You see, some people need to learn that in their relationship with the Lord. They need to be with the Lord no matter where they're at in life, whether they're doing well or whether they're doing poorly. You know, because sometimes, oh, Lord, I'm with you. You blessed me, and we're right there together. You know, give me money and vacations and new cars and houses. And I'm right there, but oh, give me, give me a test. Give me a trial. Give me a heart. God, where are you? Give me something different. No, get me out of this. Get me away from this, Lord. I don't like this. You see, our loyalty to the Lord, we need to learn something here. Ittai says, I'm with you no matter what. And that should be the Christian's heart to God. God, I'm with you. Jesus, I'm with you. No matter what's going on in my life, I am right there with you. So David said to Ittai, after he pledges his loyalty to him, he says, go, cross over. Then Ittai and the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed. He's bringing his whole family with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. When you're in Jerusalem and you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look over at the Temple Mount, where the Temple Mount once stood, you look across the valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. It runs along the east side of the city of Jerusalem. The, the city of David is just south of where the Temple Mount stood. So you can, I, when you go there, and we'll be going again if you have an interest in going in, in 2018, when you go there, you can actually stand where the city of David was. You look down across the Kidron Valley and up the other side to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives on that area is now covered with, with housing, but I I can see this geographically picturing it in my mind as David would move out of this this palace if you will as he's walking down this steep incline down to where the 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 Kidron brook would as he crosses over and then begins a steep descent up to the Mount of Olives back to the same desert he once fled from Saul in he's heading in the same direction as he's leaving he's walking down the Kidron Valley across the book the Kidron brook and he's headed up to the Mount of Olives He's heading back to the same wilderness that he fled from, that he fled from Solon. When he was in Jerusalem, he had security and peace and closeness, and now he's heading right back into the desert. It's interesting, life takes those turns sometimes, don't you? doesn't it? Sometimes you think you're out of the desert in your life, and pretty soon something happens, and you find yourself right back there again. It's okay. Watch what David does. Verse 24, there was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. They sat down the Ark of the Covenant, and Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Zadok was the high priest there at the time, and he was prepared to follow David with the Ark of the Covenant. Look what David says, or look what Zadok says to the king, verse 25. And the king, or the king says to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back, and he'll show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as, he seems, as seems good to him. David trusted in God and did not make the mistake of thinking the ark had some sort of magical power. Did you catch what he said? He said to Zadok, take the ark back in. Put it back where it belongs in the city. If God's with me and he finds favor, I'll be back. If God's not with me, then so be it. I love that attitude. Couldn't he, what could he be saying? How so often we hear, God, why is this happening to me? God, what are you doing? God, I thought, I thought, I was, your, I thought I was a man after God's own heart. After all, it was written in the Bible. God, I thought, I thought, I thought we were tight. I thought we had this relationship, you and me, and now, and now I'm being forced to flee by my very own son. He, but he, that's not his heart at all. 
I love his, his surrender to God. God, your will be done is what he's saying. God, whatever you want. He tells the high priest, just take the ark back. God's in control here. If God wants me to come back, he'll come back. If God wants to, if he doesn't find favor with me, then he doesn't find favor with me. Listen, Christian, make that same, make that same commitment in your life. Would you allow God to be in control? Would you come to the difficult situation and say, Lord, whatever you want here. If I find favor with you, great. If you don't want it to happen that way, great, that's okay too. I am, I am loyal to you. I am connected to you. I'm not going to leave you or quit following you or even doubt you just simply because my circumstances aren't very comfortable right now or simply because I don't like where I'm at. I'm not going to give up on that. I love that heart of David. He just says, God, whatever, whatever happens, the Lord's will be done. Yet he continues. And then he says in verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? That means are you not a prophet? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. Himaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Notice what he said. He said, listen, you're a priest. You're, you're a prophet of God. Go on back in. Do the priestly thing. Do the prophet thing. But I'm going to wait out here, and if you hear something, you let me know. If you hear from God on this, you tell me. I'll be waiting here. You, you send word to me. But he's also setting up what? A spy inside of where Absalom's about to take over. Listen, you go on back in there, and you find out. You, you let me know what you're hearing. You let me know what's going on. So David went up, verse 30, the ascent of Mount of Olives, up, the, up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went up. He wept. He's weeping. The burden is great. And he had his head covered, and he went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Yet another, somebody else that he was close with, that's, that's Bathsheba's grandfather. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. I like that. He says, Lord, since he's defected from me, just give him bad counsel. Just give him bad counsel, Lord. Just help his counsel to be foolishness. Now, it's at this point, I can picture David leaving the city of David walking down the steep incline, walking over the Kidron Brook. It's not a brook there anymore. It's been, the water's been re-diverted. But walking back up the Mount of Olives. And as I think about that, I also think about Jesus. Because after coming into the city of Jerusalem with his disciples, he shared the Last Supper with them. And then where did he go to pray? He went to the Mount of Olives. He made the same descent down the steep incline, across the Kidron Brook, and then up to the Mount of Olives to pray. Both David and Jesus suffered for sin. David for his own and Jesus for yours. Same descent. Do you see the likeness and the comparison there? Now, verse 32, it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. Oh, I like that. With his life in danger, he's fleeing from his own son. His life is falling apart. People are forsaking him left and right. The people are, have chosen Absalom over him. David stops at the top of the Mount of Olives, and he takes time to do what? To worship. He's going to worship. Life is falling down around me. Life, life, life stinks right now. But yet he still finds it in his heart to worship. He's still willing to give God, the creator of mankind, the creator of the universe, the time for worship. What is it 
that gets in our way of worship. Oh, sometimes we get busy. We don't have time. Oh, sometimes we just, you ever, you ever not been in the mood to worship? You ever just come in and maybe to church, you're just cranky today. You know, you had a bad day. I just don't feel that. I don't want to go sing those songs. No, no. We don't worship because we feel like worship. And we worship, why? Because God is worthy to be worshipped. You see, worship isn't based on how I feel. Sometimes churches will, 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 will try to pull people into worship with an emotional, emotional tug or an emotional pull. No, no, we don't worship God out of our emotions. We worship God for who he is. Now, that worship may be emotional, but we don't allow our emotions to be the thing that drives us to worship. You see, our worship for God is because he is worthy to be worshipped, and it's not contingent upon our circumstances. It's not contingent upon our health. You ever, you ever meet somebody that's sick, maybe terminally ill, and they're still worshiping God? He still deserves to be worshiped. He's still on the throne. You ever meet somebody who's lost it all financially, still worshiping God? You know, I often think that that's the true test of a believer. Will you worship when times are tough? Will you worship when times are difficult? Or do we just want to go back in our own little corner and have our own little pity party? Because sometimes we do that too, don't we? We kind of look at our circumstances and go, well, nobody likes me, and I don't know, and this and that. We find all these reasons. Can I encourage you, if you want to get out of your own little pity party, just start worshiping. Start realizing who God is. Go back, start in Job 38, and read Job 38 to the end of the book, Job 42. Just read it. It'll, it'll just give you a quick, he'll ask you, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, would you know, tell me if you know where the deep, depths of the deep are. Tell me where the snow is stored up. Tell me all these questions about, about nature that we go, I don't know. The weatherman can't even get it right. He's trained to do it. God says, I know. God says, I'm the one that controls that. And you want to know, you want to, you want to create a heart of worship. Go read Job 38 through 42, and it'll create a heart of worship. I love the fact, and I can just picture it happening, having been there just recently in March. I can just see David coming down the hill, back up the Mount of Olives, and standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, looking back at the city of Jerusalem, going, praise God in all this. In the midst of his fleeing, in the midst of his what is it we read? He's weeping. He's weeping. He's crying. But in the midst of it all, he's worshiping. He's worshiping. Don't ever let your circumstance keep you from worshiping God. If you will worship, your circumstance will become much clearer. It'll become much easier to deal with, and you'll be able to work through it because your reliance is on God, and it'll help you put things in perspective. All right. Verse 32. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, then you're going to become a burden to me. But if you return to this city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously. So I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. It's the mighty military mind at work. And do you not have Zadok and Abathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abathar, the priest. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Himaz and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. Notice what he's done. He's told them, he's given them a mission. He says, listen, Hushai. You come with me, you're going to slow me down. It's not going to work out. You know, I don't need you here. I need you to go back into the city. You know, I've already heard, I've already heard that uh, Ahithophel is defected. He's now with Absalom. Why don't you go and see if you can counteract his counsel? 
See what you can hear. You're going to be on the inside, and we're going to see that come true next week. You're going to be on the inside, and I want you to be a spy for me. But I also, notice what he does. He tells them who he can trust. He says, listen, when you hear information, when you find out what's going on, you go tell, the, tell uh, Zadok and his kids. You go tell them about it, and, and they will get that information to me, and we'll be able to do this. Brilliant military strategy. Is he running? Yes, but is he still offensively going? Is he, is he giving up? No, he's not giving up. He's put it in the hands of the Lord. Notice his peace. We read in the Psalm chapter 3, he's sleeping. He, took, he was able to sleep during this process as he's running. He's able to rest because he's trusting in the Lord, not in his own ability. But yet he's also taking the military, uh, making the military decisions that he needs to make, the strategies, implementing them to see this, uh, to see this through. David leaves uh, Hushai in place to help him out. Now, here's what we saw tonight, just in recap. Tonight we saw the plans of a divisive person detailed out for us. Did you catch what they are? Number one, the person will promote himself. Number two, they'll be a hard worker. Number three, they'll target a specific group of people who are usually disgruntled or there's a problem with, there's something they're not happy with. Number four, they'll present themselves in a certain personality. They'll present themselves as caring. They'll present themselves as humble. They want to fix the problem. Number five, they'll create or they'll magnify a small problem so that they can be the solution. And number six, they'll be the solution to their own problem. Notice when someone comes to you with a problem and then points to themselves as the solution to the problem, that should be the key. That should be the indication, what's going on here? Why are you promoting yourself? Because if they really had a solution to the problem, what would they do? they fix it. Or they'd go tell the person who had the control to fix it, right? It's, but not, not somebody who wants to divide. Because they, if they were to do that, that problem would get fixed. They'd have to find another problem. This is exactly what happens in churches. You go back and if you've been part of a church that is divided, you march through these steps and you will see it takes place the exact same way that it's laid out right here, what Absalom does. It could have all been counteracted had David held Absalom to the justice that he deserved for murder. It could have been all been counteracted if David had held uh, Amnon to the justice he deserved. It could have all been counteracted had David not married more than one wife. He wouldn't have lost his standing before the people either. All that, all that, all those things would have would counteracted it. So may we recognize and may we cut off those people in our churches, in our organizations, in our workplaces, in our families that are divisive. May we cut them off. May we not give them the time of day. May we expose them because they're not going to, you know, they don't set out and go, I want to divide our family. Oh, I want to divide the church. I want to divide the workplace. It doesn't happen that way. They just start doing it. Their, their real goal is what? Self-promotion. It's all about them. It's not about solving the problem. It's not about fixing the organization. It's not about building the church stronger. It's about me or them, whoever's the one that's dividing. They want their self-promotion. They want the credit. They want the recognition. So may we recognize those who are divisive. As Christians, may our decisions be well thought out. Would you give mind to the consequences of the decisions you're about to make? especially when it comes to big ones. I'm not talking about where you go eat lunch. I'm talking about when it comes to life-making decisions, when it comes to, even when it comes to a decision where you're going to choose to willingly sin, where you decide, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm going to do this thing, and I, I got the grace of God, so I'm moving forward. Before you do it, would you pause just a moment and say, what are the consequences from this thing? What if I get caught? What if it goes public? What if this happens? What, what if, what if, what if, will you play that what if game and see what those consequences are? And when you're done, I guarantee it'll, have a, it'll, it'll bear in you choosing to make that decision or not. Am I doing this just selfishly? 
And like David, the third thing, may we all worship the Lord no matter what's going on. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be worshiped. David's life is going to get worse from here. We're going to see it begin to crumble. Absalom's life is going to get worse from here. Matter of fact, it's going to be short-lived. But we're going to see it crumble. It's going, to, it's going to begin to fall on itself. Let's pray. Father, may we be those believers who recognize and cut off those who are divisive in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches. May we see that their desire is just for themselves. Lord, may our decisions be well thought. May we really take the time to weigh the consequences. And Lord, as we take that time, would you reveal the true consequences to us? Father, I don't think that we always recognize the consequences. So would your Holy Spirit, would the Holy Spirit just reveal those consequences to us? And Father, may we also create in ourselves a heart of worship. May we be willing to worship you no matter what's going on. No matter what kind of day we've had, no matter whether we're cranky or not, Lord, would we be able to be willing to give you the worship because you are God. You are our Savior, Jesus. You went to the cross to pay the price for our sin. That alone is worthy of so much worship. Father, may we not be distracted. May we be able to offer that praise to you. May we remember that you're on the throne and that you're much bigger than anything going on in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.